What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State. And I'm joined today by three of my illustrious co-hosts, including Shereen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, Canada. Also joining us is Jessica Luther, author of the forthcoming book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. She's in Austin, Texas. And lastly, Lindsay Gibbs, a freelance sports reporter and creator of the PowerPlays newsletter. You can sign up at powerplays.news. She's in Washington, D.C. Before we start, Flamethrowers, I want to send a big thank you to our patrons for their continued and generous support. And we all at Burn It All Down want to give a special shout out to all of those who remain on the front lines of this global pandemic and everybody in the streets as activists who are doing their part feet to the ground to make this world a better place. On the show today, we are going to be doing a speed round of co-host questions. And I say speed, but you know me and you know my co-host, but you will have co-host questions where we all are going to ask each other a little bit about what the work is that we're doing right now outside of the podcast and how our expertise might weigh in on certain issues that are happening right now. Then we're going to re-air an interview that Lindsay did with Rebecca Nagel back in episode 33 about the Red Hawks campaign to change the name of the Washington football team. The interview is just as relevant now, and so we are going to re-air it for you. And of course, we're going to be burning some things and shouting out some badass women of the week. So before we get into that, I want to talk about, I've seen some extremely bad ideas for renaming the Washington football team and some, I guess, okay ones. If you were dying to know what betting odds are, they have the presidents at plus 300, generals at plus 400. They have the Washington memorials at plus 500, (laughs) which sounds like the worst idea. And then they have specific names like Jefferson's plus 700, Roosevelt's plus 700. Yeah. And then they have the Washington monuments. (laughs) And plus 800, which also seems like a terrible idea. So I guess I just wanted to start by asking you, what would your go-to rename be? Because it does seem like we're perhaps getting closer to that mountaintop where this finally might, you know, budge a little bit. Jessica. Well, because it's much easier to criticize than create. I'm going to say, please don't do Warriors. Could I just like put that into the universe? Like, yes. I just feel like that would be really destructive and would allow people to just still show up with all of their racist shit. So exactly. definitely not the Warriors. I kind of, like when you said the Washington Monuments, I just kind of love it. <laughs> 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 There's a part of me that thinks they deserve to not have a great name and then have to live with it so that they remember <laughs> all the time the shame it's of so why they phallic. have this new name. Like, it is it's so, so phallic. phallic. But I really don't want like the generals. Like I'm not into the military stuff either. I mean, 
presidents. That's it all just sounds really bad. I really do like the sound of red tails and red hawks. That kind of thing sounds good. But man, there is if they have to live with the monuments, that would be <laughs> pretty great. Lynn, do you have any great ideas? I do have to say, so I, you know, I've I'm coming up on five years in DC, and I think the thing that frustrates me the most is how, you know, it, it, people only associate it with being the federal government and, you know, the the presidents and all that stuff when there's really so much more to DC and to DC culture at, at large. So I would like them to to do something <laughs> a little bit away from, you know, federal government symbolism. But I don't know. I mean, <laughs> my favorite, I think that people were talking about is like the Washington states is, you know, as far as like, let's get us some states rights. <laughs> right. So that's, that's kind of, you know, that, that's, that's where I am. But I look, I've seen, you know, something like the red tails or the red hawks. I know that there's problems with both. I've seen a lot of people loving them. I've seen a lot of people hating them. I don't know. Let's just go with something simple. Like, let's not overcomplicate this. Shireen. The first thing I thought of was monuments. And I'm like, why do I, why am I thinking that? But I come up with the winner, the Washington Deladon. I think that would be amazing. It's never going to happen. But like, let's do a nod to the best thing in Washington, which is the WNBA team. So this is what I, I, I realized. Okay, your silence is deafening right now, all of you. But I think that that's what I came up with because, you know, I have just a very invested, emotional investment in an NFL team out of Washington. Somebody, I think I saw Snyder Riders somewhere, just ridiculous. But I don't know. I just I would love it to be frivolous, but I they take themselves way too seriously the the Washington team to do that. But I would love frivolity as well. Well, there you have it, folks. We'll, we'll update you with the odds. Maybe one of those uh choices will stick. I can already hear the taxation without representation chance for the <laughs> Washington state <laughs> statehood. Anywho, on to the next. For the last four months, we have been bringing you updates and news week to week that usually are centered around COVID, that are centered around people bungling the response to it, people excelling at it, sports coming back or coming back before they should. There's been a lot to talk about, and it was cute. I think Jess said at the beginning of March, like, how are we going to do a sports podcast with no sports? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was that You're was welcome. funny. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that often gets lost, you know, we do burn it all down and obviously have our conversations, but all of us actually have jobs beyond the podcast and expertise that, of course, we bring to the pod, but projects that we're working on outside of it. Um, and we just wanted to take a moment and pause and reset and do a, a speed round of co-host questions where we're going to ask each other questions that we have about their work. So this is designed to for us to answer some questions we have of each other and also to just have a larger discussion and, and kind of flex a little bit and demonstrate what complete badasses my co-hosts are because um, let me tell you, they're up to some really, really dope things. So I'm going to start by putting somebody on the hot seat. Mm, 
Jessica. Okay. I'm ready. You get to go first. All right, Jess, you're on the hot seat. And let's see, Shireen, can you kick off the questions? Hello, Jessica Luther. Hello, Shireen Ahmed. First question. How was the process of collaborating with another writer for your upcoming book, Kavitha Davidson? And if you have a particular vision for the book, like, is it similar to the way we do the podcast where it's, you know, the process of like Google document and you figure it out? How is it specifically with another writer? Yeah, thanks. So Loving Sports, When They Don't Love You Back is coming out September 1st. It's been years in the making for like actual years in the making. It is, it's very different than what we do here. This is easily one of the most collaborative things I've ever done in my life, uh, burn it all down. And the book lends itself because it every chapter is topical. So every chapter is a different about a different thing. We were really able to divide it down the middle and each take on a different chapter. So we didn't have to split the writing of a topic. And so one of us would write a chapter, send it to the other to edit and read through. And there was a point where we had to figure out the order of chapters to make it flow uh, and to make it make sense as a more of a conversation than just individual chapters. But yeah, it's a, it was a very different collaborative process than what we do here on the show, which is, I don't know, I feel like maybe I'm trying to think of the right words, like hands on, like everyone is deeply involved in all the decision making here. Whereas like when I was writing a chapter on brain trauma, I just decided who I wanted to interview and I would ask Kavitha if she had uh, connections or any ideas, that kind of thing. But it was really my chapter to uh, craft. And so it, it definitely worked differently. Yeah, I want to piggyback on Shireen's question and also ask you about the book, which I cannot wait for. So I want to know, how do you write a book? Asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah. But also, um, especially with a topic that is so resonant. I know, for instance, you have a, a chapter about the the name change or, or the kind of battles over it with the Washington football team. Like, how do you, when you're doing final page proofs or everything's already bound, like resist the urge to be like, wait, but there's more. I need to update that chapter. Like, how do you write a book when everything's still changing in real time. Yeah, it's actually really difficult to sort of sit back at this point and just know that the book has been printed, like, or it's at the printer at this point. So we literally can't do anything with it. I do want to say while we're talking about the book that it's really fun to be with the three of you right now talking about this because you all appear in the book. I interviewed each one of you for it at different points in there. How do you write a book? You do it literally piece by piece. Uh, you just break it up into the tiniest chunks that you can get, and then you just keep going. I'm a big list person, so I made long lists so that I would just check them off as I went to feel accomplished. Uh, but it is really difficult right now. I did write the chapter on Native mascots, which is, of course, framed around the Washington NFL team. But it's also there's a big chunk in there about the FSU team, uh, which is my alma mater. Uh, and it is about just Native mascots in general. So one thing I've had to do is just be OK with the fact that we might be late. It would be wonderful to be late. Uh, are old on the Washington NFL team's name. Like if it changes and the chapter is old, that would be phenomenal because the name needs to change. But I do think, you know, there's that little selfish part of you that's like, man, I worked on that for years. Uh, the three interviews for that chapter, I interviewed three Native women. They're from 2017. So it is hard to sit back and, and watch everything changing. The very final thing, the big ad that we did at the very end was a paragraph about 
COVID because we'd already totally drafted the book before everything shut down. And then it was like, oh, shit, we don't know what the other side's going to look like. But I do remind myself that the book is really about big systemic things in sports, just like this podcast is. So stuff we talked about three years ago on this podcast is still relevant today because those big systemic things aren't really going away, right? Like they're still here. So even if Native mascots, even if the Washington NFL team changes its name before the book comes out, the fact that it stuck around for that long is really something that we as a society have to keep interrogating. The fact that people are still using the fucking slur in order to talk about how racist it is, they're like people participating in the racism as it's happening. That's something that is still with us, whether or not the name changes. Totally. All right. uh, Last question, Lindsay. Yeah. So Jess, you do so much and I'm always in awe. And I often actually forget that you're on top of everything in a PhD program as well, (laughs) working on your PhD. So I wanted to ask, how is that going? And you know, why uh, at this point in your career, you you know, you're already established, why did you decide to kind of go back uh, and, and take the academia route? Yeah, I forget too. don't tell anyone in my department that but I, <laughs> I also will sometimes forget that that's the thing I'm doing. I decided to go back. I missed it. Like there are things about academia that not a ton, but the kind of stuff that I did miss <laughs> from academia was really the work and the research. Mm-hmm. Like, I really do love the archive. I do love reading old newspaper articles and people's letters and trying to figure out how to take all these little pieces of this puzzle and put them together and say something about the past. And that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy. And I have been sitting on this project for years now. I'm writing about the 1970s, uh, the UT women's basketball team. It's like the moment when it becomes professionalized in the sense of it goes from like a club team to an actual team. And they, UT is an incredibly racist place in the 1970s. Uh, there's a lot of good evidence of this. And the team is all white. And they hire a black man to be the coach. And then they end up firing him to hire Jody Conrad. There's a lot here about Title IX, about the move towards that, but also these, like what, I just can't wrap my mind around them putting a black man in charge of a team of white women in 1974. Like, That doesn't make any sense based on everything we know about race and gender at the time. And I knew I've known about this for years. And when they hired Shaka Smart to be the head basketball coach at UT, he was the first black man to have that job. I pitched to, I want to say Sports Illustrated. I was like, I have a story about the actual first black man to head a basketball team at UT. And like, it just wasn't what they wanted, right? And so in order to tell the story and to do it the justice that it deserves, I feel like you kind of do need the time and space that academia gives you the kind of conversation. So uh, it made sense to go back to do it. And, you know, I always, there's always a lingering thing about not finishing that it would be really nice to get those three letters and and to complete that work. Uh, so there, that's part of it too. That's very cool. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm <laughs> such a geek. Great. Thank you for taking your turn in the hot seat. Uh, next up, Shireen, come on down. Bam. Hello, Shireen Sashay's down the aisle. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> to kick us off on questioning Shireen, Jess, I'm coming right back to you. Can you can you start off? Yeah, I'd love to. Well, first, I would like to know what color hijab you're wearing as you sashay down. But then second, I'm really excited about your new job at TSN. Are there 
I was thinking about like what it is that you're going to cover and are there particular people in Canada and sport or sports media, of course, including Prime Minister Sinclair, uh, that you're hoping to highlight or include in your work while you're doing this for TSN? Thanks, Jess. Hijab is maroon because okay, it's the one that you mentioned that I you liked. That so I'm going to do that one. I am really excited about TSN. I had my first story there and it went really well. And it was really interesting because it was the first time that they had had the term BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, embedded into a story ever. And it's, sm- I know, it's small steps, but they're sometimes to me, they feel like leaps. And the support and love from practically everybody I know and I'm friends with in journalism retweeted it. So I was very grateful for that. And people who were at also at different outlets also retweeted it, you know, even though they work for the other guy. So it was just, it was really nice. Now TSN is super open to things. In addition to that, it's not just the stories, like very much what we sought to do and burn it all down. It may have been unintentional at the time was to change the face of what experts look like. And I'm very proud we've done that. We're doing that constantly. But I had somebody tweet to me that they were so excited and I'm going to tear up, but she said that I could never imagine as an 11-year-old child seeing somebody that dresses like and looks like me right for TSN about hockey. And that really meant a lot to me. And it really pointed to the fact there's such a deep, there's just, a, it's so cavernous, the hole that we're missing of people in for what this, what our community looks like generally. I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited for everybody to read what you're working on. I want to ask you a question. Um, So one of the things that we saw this week is that Jamad's um, video of her handles for celebrating Somalian Independence Day, like seemingly hit that viral nerve of the internet and all of a sudden looked up and had 275,000 likes. ESPN was retweeting it. Kalani was retweeting it. And I remember you saying, this is, I don't, she, this is what she does all the time. Um, but I wanted to ask you <laughs> and draw on the expertise that you have. Why do you think these random videos of, of hijabis playing ball like go viral? And what does it tell us about how and what ways it subverts or defies people's expectations? In other words, when people get really hype and sharing something that is seemingly an everyday occurrence, is it not more revealing about them than it is, you know? whatever they're sharing. Shireen. I love this question, Dr. Davis. I love it because it it seeks to sort of look at something beyond the surface. And absolutely, what it is is that media is still obsessed with the juxtaposition of what they think tropes of uh, Muslim women are still in place. And the idea that Jamad, who is phenomenal. She's an absolute doll. And people are like, you have to have her on the show. People, I know it's coming, relax. But the thing is, is that her, she actually ended up becoming viral because of a video that House of Highlights 
shared of her because she's playing in an abaya. And an abaya is a long gown that can be buttoned down in the front. And what it is meant to do is, you know, cover the shape of your of your physique. So those women that choose to wear it, it's like a long, like, I love it because you can wear like whatever you want underneath and just not worry about it. And but she's playing in that. And the one that she has is it, it's buttoned down as opposed to like one that you slip over your head without buttons. So she's wearing that with like trackies underneath and her runners and, and, and whatnot. And like her handles are tight. There's no question, but she is a basketball player. Like, I, I think I find it fascinating that people are so surprised that her handles are so good. It's people aren't surprised that her handles are good. If it wasn't for what she looked like, she's a black hijab wearing woman. And so we don't think that black hijab wearing women are supposed to do that. But man, do your research. A lot of them look like that. It's, again, it goes back to who's sharing these stories. We don't see enough of them, but she's setting a standard here of, opening up the idea of what we think basketball looks like. Now she's ready for it. We're ready for it. But the rest of sports media is still like, what? And you see the comments in that video. People are like, whoa, that's so good. And the comments are funny. Like her handles are better than mine. And my, she's breaking my ankles, this and yes, but she's a basketball player. That's inherently what they do. Like you need to, you need to get over yourself and how much of disbelief you are. So you're right. Amira, it's more about who's asking the question. And this is, comes with no at all disrespect to her because I think she's amazing generally in what she's done to amplify that place for women in, in, in Muslim women in sport and hijab wearing women in particular is a big thing. I don't want to dismiss that, but I do want to look at why the fixation mm-hmm. because it matters. Because it matters. And Lindsay, can you wrap up uh, Shireen on the hot seat? Yeah, I just, um, you know, you're the expert when it comes to Muslim women in sport and always have your eye on stories that I I need to know more about. And I think the world needs to know more about. So I just wanted to ask, like, what is on what stories about Muslim women in sport? Obviously, I know they're not a monolith, but, you know, are there are there any stories you think right now should be getting more attention or big moments on the horizon that the world should be paying more attention to? Yeah, this is a great question because I can actually piggyback off the last one. Um, Squash, women's squash in Egypt is phenomenal. And there's Muslim women at the top of the table in the world all the time. I had a conversation with Rima Bulel actually about this recently. And, you know, she had written an article that I retweeted and the Burn It All Down account also retweeted on hijab where Muslim women in sports and predominantly hijab wearing ones, but not exclusive too. But the thing is, those Egyptian squash players don't wear hijab. They wear shorts and a t-shirt. So the idea, the media still likes to fixate on the hijab wearing Muslim athlete, where the majority of Muslim women in the world do not wear hijab. They don't. So it's still a focus on that. And I've written about this from Muslim Media Watch from a sort of a critical perspective of why is the media's fixation on that specifically. The story about Iranian women not being able to go to stadiums is something that will stay with me forever and something that I, if I wish I could, I would commit my life to advocating for. We know that football is political. We know there needs to be political pressure. And now that the spotlight's off the story, I fear that that political pressure has stopped. And so like many people that are advocating for change and campaigning for something, they want constant pressure. And it's not like that movement has stopped. It's not like women are now allowed into stadiums all the time. That's not true. 
So I would like to see that emphasis stay there. And if I, like I said, if I would, if I could, I wish I could just like, like come absolutely commit my whole life to just this one thing, because for some reason, that story, when you find something that affects you so deeply for me, this was it. Thank you so much for sharing. All right, Lindsay, it's your turn. <gasps> uh And I'm actually going to kick off the questions. I've been so enjoying all the things that you're doing over at PowerPlays. If you guys haven't yet subscribed, go do that now. What are you waiting for? But I want to ask you, uh, you wrote a, a very good piece a few weeks ago saying that when sports start back, let the women go first. And that's sort of happening. And I'm finding myself really like, uh, it's awkward. I don't, it's like, it's, they're too close. They're still too close. And I saw that this week you kind of revisited that piece as well. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what it's like watching like the NWSL right now. And also what it's like for you to have power plays as a site that you can really kind of have great nuance and revisit earlier things that even you um, talked about as things are updating in re- in real time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I did start saying early on in the pandemic, and this is an idea that kind of caught on. I- I'm not sure it was because of me, but um, that, you know, what if women's sports come back first and all of our energy and all of the media's attention and all of the sports starved people get to, you know, it- focus on women's sports for just a few weeks, even just a couple of weeks. And that way, you know, it keeps women's sports from getting lost in the trample back um, from coronavirus. Now, when I wrote that, I did not envision that. (laughs) Like I said, my piece, it's 2020, I need to learn to be a little bit more specific. I did not envision that that return would happen while the pandemic is still raging. And like cases are going up and I see you are still being filled. And, you know, I assumed that there would be a much safer environment. Um, Nor did I envision that we would be in the middle of this, you know, national moment of reckoning over police brutality and systemic racism, which of course is long overdue. But it's it so it's been all of a sudden within this, you've had, you know, women's softball was actually the first women's team sport to return in the United States. Um, And if you haven't listened yet, to Amira's special episode, you must um, you know press pause right now and go listen to that from last week because Kiki Stokes and AJ Andrews get caught up on what was what's been going on between these two teams in the in women's softball. But you know we've had them start, and then a few days later, uh, the National Women's Soccer League began and. It is what I think has been one of the 10 most pivotal days kind of in the history of women's sports. And so I I really dug deep into that in power plays, which is great. It gives me an opportunity. You know, nobody else was going to want like 4,000 words on this 10 days in women's sports, right? Like where I could grapple with the, the complications and the nuance and all of my feelings and all of these pivotal moments all together. So luckily, I, I can give myself that own space. And so that's been really special. Great. Shireen, you have the next question for Linz. I do. Linz, as a really well-recognized sports writer, you always provide context in your reporting, which I find incredibly helpful. And how do you incorporate work from sports historians in your work? What's that process? And is this a practice you always did? Uh, it's hard to say for me anything always because I just so backed into my sports writing career that there wasn't much purposeful uh, 
about it. So I'm sure early on, there's a lot of work that could have used more perspective. But certainly, you know, when I got at Think Progress and was, you know, focused full time on the intersection of sports and um, politics and culture, I wanted to make sure to put everything in the proper context. And this show has helped me so much with that. Um, you know, these regular conversations with Brenda and Amira, doctors, ha- has helped me with that. Reaching out to experts. I mean, I think that's how we first met, Shereen, was because I was writing a piece on, and I needed, I, I wanted real context for the piece I was writing on, um, I believe it was an Iranian woman. So I, I think that, look, I have to dive in and out of subjects that are really deep and really heavy all the time. And I'm not an expert on all of them, but I want to treat them carefully. And so I think it's just crucial to have these conversations. I mean, there's no way I could be the definitive voice on every single piece that I need to write. So I need to bring those voices that are the experts uh, up to the forefront or I'm not doing my job. Awesome. And last question for Lindsay, Jessica. Yeah. So Lindsay, I remember back there was a what's good at some point where you announced that you are writing a book. So I know you're in the middle of that. First, I'd love for you to remind us what it's about and tell us where you are in the process. But then I imagine this is a particular moment <laughs> in time that's giving you a lot of new material. So are you just like taking copious notes? Like, what are you, what are you doing right now? Whew, what am I doing right now? <laughs> yeah, this is so I'm writing a book about female athlete activism. And I pitched this book last year and got the book deal with Beacon Press as a way to kind of connect these threads from the fights for equal pay, to the fights for LGBTQ rights to the fights for, um, you know, the Me Too, to of course, the Black Lives Matter, and to kind of connect these threads of activism that I'd seen throughout women's sports, and write what I want to be kind of the definitive piece about this moment in female athlete activism. And now as I'm really getting into writing it and reporting it, there's this whole new wave coming up. So it's been overwhelming. It's been thrilling. And there's frustration, I think, that I'm sure everyone feels like that my book's not done, that it's not already out there, that I can't already point to this and be like, here's context for all of this, everybody. But I think more than anything, it just it just kind of helps fuel myself to get to get this reporting done. It is a little bit difficult because it's easier to track down players when they're coming to your city to play games <laughs> and you can just kind of corner them. So it's really difficult to try and track down everyone on the phone and through going through PR reps and COVID has made reporting it uh, very frustrating, I, I do have to say. So I'm behind. Shocker. But ultimately, this moment just galvanizes me to want to, you know, I'm going back and re-reporting a lot of what we saw in 2015 and 2016 from a, you know, a hindsight vision. And I think that that's very, very valuable, especially in this moment. It's all so exciting. You guys are all doing such exciting things. Okay, I guess we're moving on. No, I'm kidding. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Linz, what you got for me? So... You, one of the things I'm always fascinated is like, you're not only this uh, expert on all of your subjects, uh, but you work, I mean, you teach athletes today. And obviously, Penn State has, you know, phenomenal athletics programs. So I just wanted to ask, you know, there's this big narrative right now that I even perpetuate at times about how student, 
college athletes, I don't want to use the NCAA's word, (laughs) college athletes are really finding their voices and kind of recognizing their power, especially black college athletes. And I wanted to see as someone who works, you know, on a one-on-one basis with a lot of these um, college athletes, is that something you, have you noticed a shift over the past few years as a teacher? And, you know, do you, do you think this narrative is correct or, you know, is, is there more to it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I would say that what I find the shift to be is that they feel like they have more cover to say things they've already been saying. Um, And so, you know, the kind of finding their voice aspect, no, well, they found their voice. They've been had that. (laughs) It's more, you know, finding the microphone. And so, you know, I have, I have a on any number of athletes from any number of sports in my classes. And I, I have really deep connected relationships with many of them that, that go beyond the classroom um, as they, as the semester ends and they kind of move on and they are always <laughs> talking and critiquing the kind of systems they're in or talking about social justice issues. And I think the hardest thing when you are a college athlete and, you know, kind of unpaid labor in that regard is you're constantly balancing you know, your place within this system, your future career aspirations, like literally the fact that your time is so structured that like the most you can do on some weeks is to just hit, get, go through all the motions. And, you know, when I was talking to Anna Cockrell last week at USC, the thing that really stuck with me, she said, COVID's given her time to like even stop and think. And so I think that one of the things we're seeing is that under the cover of these corporate and institutional kind of Black Lives Matter statements and the cover that it's given student athletes to vocalize what they've been already saying, right, is that we're hearing their voices more, but they, they've always been talking about this. And, and it's a very precarious place that they speak out from, but I couldn't be more prouder of, of the student athletes that I know that are pushing, that you might not even hear about, but are pushing their coaching staff, are pushing their institutions in ways that are, are profound and I think will yield results as, as we keep moving forward. Whew, they found their vo- they've had their voice. They just needed to find a microphone. I wrote that down. That is some <laughs> yeah. good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm next. Dr. Davis, you're very busy nowadays, and that is important because you were brilliant. My initial question was going to be, how do you manage being beautiful and simultaneously gorgeous? But you said I wasn't allowed to ask that. So the question I have specifically is you are very, very busy, but do you ever feel a sense of frustration that you've been writing and studying for years and have people who have done the similar work to you before you? Black academics to this are not new, but suddenly people in sports media are seemingly giving a shit and paying attention. Is there a sense of frustration that comes out like, I told you, we've been saying this? <laughs> Does that ever happen? It's a great question. I mean, I, I think that we all have been there. We all are constantly there now. Uh, when you are working on something and when you're working on something that seemingly people don't care about, and so you're just kind of hammering, hammering, hammering away at a nail, you're painting one piece of a picture over and over and over again, and it seems like nobody cares, and all of a sudden the national stop spotlight kind of stops on the work you're doing. And all of a sudden, it's like all of these people are next to you. You're like, hold on, where did you come from? And I think that the frustration comes not necessarily in that people are now focusing on it because for so many of us, we want that. But it's, I think one of the things that happens is that we're, we're not 
just that focus doesn't come with a removal of like how power works. And so all of a sudden you have somebody who just like thought about something you've been thinking about years, but has more resources and bigger platform. And I think those are the things that can be frustrating because it's like that, that GIF where you're just kind of like, sis, we've been new, like we've been here. (laughs) And I think, you know, all of us have felt that for a variety of things that we study, which is part and parcel of the work we do. Um, so I would I would say that that is not like my frustration. Yeah, like of course a little bit, but I think the thing that really bothers me more is that feeling like okay, well, when it leaves, is your interest li- li- leaving with it? And I think it's it's also in the kind of res- resisting simplistic narratives. One of the things that can happen when people get a, a microphone to amplify a story they just discovered is that they're asking questions that have already been answered but don't know that. Um, they don't know what they don't know. And so that's fine. They're operating from that. But you're at a place where you're like, no, but I'm ready for the next chapter of this discussion. I'm ready for part two because we've already, we're already there. Next up, we have a re-air of the interview that Lindsay did with Rebecca Nagel back in episode 33. Um, We've had so many more people come on board since then. So if you haven't heard this interview, I'm so glad to hear it again. And for those who had, I think that you'll all agree that the relevance of this interview is, is so important. And part of why we want to re-air this is to push back on the stupid-ass statement that Dan Snyder put out, which basically is like, hmm, now we'll consider, put out with the, the word written 15 million times to Jess's earlier point, but this complete erasure of all of the Native activism and voices that have constantly been pounding this issue for 50, 60 years at this point. Um, and so part of the effort of re-airing this is to spotlight not only those voices, but also highlight a very real campaign um, that was just a few years ago that should have got the traction that we're having now um, and that contains brilliant nuggets still that are applicable to today. So check out the interview. Hello, everyone. I am here with Rebecca Nagel. She's an organizer with the Red Hawks campaign and a citizen of Cherokee Nation. If you have been online at all this past week, uh, you might have seen a news story that the Washington NFL team was changing its name to the Washington Redhawks. That announcement spread midweek and very quickly was uh, picked up by some very viral sources. It came out that that was, of course, not the actual case, unfortunately, that Dan Snyder did not change his heart overnight. But the Rebecca was one of the people who helped create this campaign because it was actually a group of activists who were trying to spread the word about, I believe, how easy a name change would be and how it could be actually not as complicated as we're making it. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So let's just start. Where in the world did this idea come from? Yeah, you know, I had been thinking about spoofing the Washington football team for a while. I had um, done a couple other internet-based culture jams before, and I thought that the team would make a really good target. So I approached a woman named Jordan Daniels, who's the co-founder of the Rising Hearts Coalition, which is a group of Native advocates that do grassroots organizing in D.C. And yeah, I wanted to see if they would be interested in doing it. And they said yes. And then we started working on it in about August. So it's been in the works for a few months now. 
That's so exciting. I mean, it was so realistic. And it it wasn't one of those moments for me where it was just, of course, because I cover, you know, politics and sports. So everyone keeps sending me these articles, you know, the articles like over and over again. And of course, I realized pretty quickly that this, you know, that it had to be just a very well done spoof. But it was amazing how quickly it caught on. Were you were you expecting that? And what, what do you attribute that to? Was expecting it to get some media play. And you know, that's, was our goal, but as far and as wide as it went, uh, we definitely weren't expecting. And so it exceeded our expectations. And I think that the response really proves um, the point that we're trying to put forth with the Culture Jam is that changing the name would be easy, popular, and powerful. I mean, people were really excited about it. People really moved. And so at this point, there's really no reason other than stubborn racism why at this point the team's not changing the name. So there were, you held a couple of rallies this week. I believe one was today, this is Sunday, before the, the Washington game at FedEx Field. And there was also one at RFK Stadium. What was the point of those rallies? And I guess, what was the atmosphere? Did you encounter any, was there anyone against you? Did you, did you have any feedback, any uh, resistance? Yeah, I mean, so we were at, um, I just got home, actually, at um, the stadium today. So we had a Go Red Hawks pep rally. We had banners, we had t-shirts, we had um, speakers and a drum group. So it was a really good day. And, you know, we had some hecklers. We had some people who yelled different things at us. I would say, especially for folks who have been doing these demonstrations at the stadium, over the years, it was actually a less hostile environment than usual. And also there were a lot of fans who sort of came up and were like, well, what is this? What is this about? And we were able to have a lot of conversations with people, you know, who said, you know, like I, I would get behind the name change. I, I see, I see what you're saying. And so, yeah, I think a lot of people are really ready for it. And I think that there will always be those diehard fans who will be mad if there is any change. And I think that if you look at social justice issues, particularly racial justice issues, I mean, there are some people who will always protest racial progress in this country, which isn't a good reason to not do it. Right. Yeah. We don't have to get to 100% consensus here, like to move on people's basic human dignity. (laughs) Right. Like, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. So we just got to keep moving forward anyways. What, what are those conversations like? Take me through it. And I think that this is something that a lot of people who agree, yes, the name can be changed, should be changed. Yes, I see why this is racist. But when they're caught in those conversations with people who are ardent, you know, ardent fans, ardently against it, they kind of don't know exactly what to say. How do you handle those conversations? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, we were talking with somebody who was selling merch. And at first, you know, he's really mad that we were there because we were like setting up close to where he was selling merch. And then by the end of it, we actually gave him a Red Hawks t-shirt and we're talking. (laughs) Yeah, and another person came over and then brought his family over. And so... You know, there was some educating about the origin of the word, which sometimes a lot of times people don't know the full origin of the word. And so it actually comes from while the U.S. Army did a lot of the wholesale slaughter of indigenous people, a lot of the murder was actually settlers. And so just like individual settlers that would go out and kill native women and children. And the colonial governments would incentivize that by giving people money for scalps. And there are actually different prices for males 
female scalps and women's scalps and the scalps of children. And so settlers would go out and would murder Native people and then bring the scalps back to the government in exchange for cash. And so that's literally where the term comes from. You know, like I've heard that that description so many times and it never sent it never like it, it never seeds to make me go how how are we still having this conversation then do you know what i mean like yeah. how is how is just you saying that those two sentences how is that not the end of all of this like, yeah, and I, you know, you know, this week we spent a lot of time being mentored and talking to a longtime activist on this issue, Suzanne Harjo, who's been fighting racist mascots since the '60s. And one thing she said in our conversation this week was, you know, I haven't heard a new argument in defense of racist mascots since 1962. And I just, I don't think that there are good reasons to keep the name, and a lot of reasons for it to change. It can feel these days like we are moving backwards as a country for pretty obvious reasons. But overall, there are some positive changes still happening. But thanks to grassroots activism and thanks to people. And, you know, lately we've seen that coincide with athletics a lot. You know, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement really take off. And thanks to Colin Kaepernick, we've seen, you know, athletes really kind of find their voice and do it on a, and speak up on a bigger stage. Do you think that that current po- political movement within sports is going to help the racist mascots cause to kind of become more mainstream again? I hope so. I mean, I think that when people were kneeling during the football games, it wasn't brought up a lot in the media I watched, but I also think that the media lost the point of the original protest of the players, which was to talk about police brutality. And a lot of the media that I saw was talking about Trump and Trump's backlash and the, you know, like, what does the Star Spangled Banner mean? And what is our national anthem? And so I think even the initial issue that players were putting forward around police killing unarmed black people got lost in the media frenzy. And so I think it it's a hard yeah, I, I don't I didn't see that issue come up, but I think in general, in a broader way, I think our country is in is having an identity crisis right now. And so there's this huge backlash um, from white people who feel threatened by the advances that people of color have had. And then at the same time, we're seeing a lot of racist symbols like Confederate monuments starting to fall and people really starting to question that history. And so there's been a real, while there's been this awakening of white supremacy, I think there has at the same time been a counterbalance of a reckoning with what some of these symbols mean. And so we're in an interesting moment. And I think that the mascot debate is really relevant to that of how, how are we teaching our kids about these issues? How are we talking to them about the history of this country? And for better or worse, a lot of people get their information from pop culture and mascots is a huge way that people learn about who native people are, whether or not they would say that out loud. I think it's definitely a really big part of people's subconscious. Yeah. And there, there was recently an article, I can't remember the exact situation, why it was, but there was a, a racial slur, the N-word had been used by, I think, an NFL player on the Washington team. And the headlines about it would not bleep out the Washington team's name, but then bleep out the N-word, you know? And it was just yeah. this big, it, it was like, look, how are we doing this? Like, why do you think that 
it's become so okay to continue to use these racist mascots. And in the case of, you know, lots of times you'll have the Indians where the logo itself is very racist, but, you know, the names aren't in itself a racial slur, like with the Washington NFL team. How is that just gone overlooked? Why isn't that reckoning come? I mean, I think that one of the biggest hurdles that we face as Native people in terms of gaining equality in the United States is invisibility. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. think that either Native people don't really exist anymore or there are just so few of us and we just there's like a handful of us that live on a reservation somewhere in a really rural area. We're not seen as contemporary vibrant people. We're not seen as living in the DMV, you know, people don't realize that the tribe whose land the stadium is on is still an active tribe, then they're still practicing their ceremonies and their own self governance. And so and and I think it's this self reinforcing thing, because it's like, well, if people aren't around, and they don't exist, and they're not real, then why would you need to stand up for their rights? And I think that, you know, the maroon cartoon of a disembodied head on the side of a football helmet really reinforces those ideas that we're not real people. You know, you're not going to stand up for the rights of a cartoon. Right. What There's so much great grassroots uh, activism going on within the Native community. How can those outside of the community help and help amplify that work? And and are there any specific works that you would like to, to draw attention to that maybe people aren't aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, getting involved with whatever organization is in your area. And so looking up, it might be a tribal organization, it might be, you know, an urban Indian health center, but really starting by trying to build relationships with whatever Native community is where you're at. Um, And then I think also it's really important for folks to include us in their issues. So, you know, when people are talking about the environment, you know, indigenous communities are at the front line. When people are talking about global warming, you know, our communities are at the front line of resource extraction and a lot, almost every issue in the U.S. And so a lot of times we're just completely left out. Like I was watching the news And I was watching this episode about police shootings, and it was talking about how we talk about a lot of times police fatalities, but there hasn't been a lot of statistics on people who have been shot by the police and survived. And so they showed statistics by race, and they completely left out Native Americans when we have really high rates of police violence. And so I think that visibility issue is key. And so... Yeah, I think non-Native people building relationships and then also self-educating. I mean, if you, you know, I think most people in the U.S., like what you know is like what you've learned in your high school history class and what you've learned through the media, which is not only not enough information, but also incorrect information. And so there's just a lot of re-educating that people need to do in this country to be able to understand Native identity and Native rights to be able to effectively advocate for it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the success of the campaign, which even solicited a response from the Washington NFL team itself. Of course, the response was, how dare you think we might be uh, be decent people? We are never changing this name, but it was a response nonetheless. And uh, where can people follow the work you're doing going forward? Yeah, so people can follow the Rising Hearts Coalition on Facebook and Twitter, and people can also root for the updated Washington Red Hawks team, also under that name on Facebook and Twitter. 
Love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. It's time for everybody's favorite segment, the burn pile. Let us start with Lindsay. So this is, I guess, not as high stakes of a burn as usual, but I don't know. Actually, it might be. So the WNBA is supposed to be starting back. Um, toward, uh, July 24th is the is the hopeful date in Bradenton, Florida, at the IMG Academy. And they're actually supposed to start back playing a week before the NBA is supposed to start. And yet we know so, so, so much more about what is going on in the NBA. The transparency has been night and day. And I know the WNBA is in a precarious position. I know it's, it doesn't have million-dollar contracts to give out to its players for playing as leverage. I know that things are scary. But the lack of transparency regarding... Um, what the health and safety protocols are regarding even what players are opting in and what what players are opting out um, regarding rosters, regarding sizes, regarding every single part of the process. We don't know what tests have been done so far or whether there have been any positives, whereas we get um, that data from the NBA on a regular basis. And it's been extremely frustrating as a reporter, as a fan, as someone who cares about the league. I think actually that the WNBA itself and the Players Association are to blame in this case. The Players Association, uh, which has done phenomenal things, and I understand why, but it hold thing, holds things ridiculously close to the best at times that I think it disadvantages the league as a whole. And I just want to say, like, this is a case where... Fans and media need to know there needs to be some sunlight shown on these processes. That will help everyone, I truly believe. And so I just kind of want to, it feels like everyone is hiding something. And that is not a good place to be headed into, you know, this 22 game season in which players are going to be putting themselves at high risk. Uh, We need sunlight. We need transparency. There's going to be a lot of leeway because everyone knows things aren't perfect right now. This is unprecedented. But women's sports leagues need to be held accountable for their decision making and um, their processes and what's going on behind the scenes just as much, if not more, than men's sports leagues. Uh, So I'd like to burn this veil of silence, this cloak that has been put up and these question marks. Hopefully, by the time you're all hearing this, we'll know more things because tomorrow people are supposed to get on a plane on Monday. But it's just been it's been infuriating. So I just like to burn this the cloak of darkness burn 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 i'll go next i'm gonna talk about (laughs) barfstool we try not to talk about them on the show and i will keep it brief because i don't want them to have any more space than they do but it has to be mentioned and i'm not gonna even talk about dave portney's bullshit like i'm not Going to revisit his racism. Again, these are things that we've known. We've known about the toxicity there. We didn't need to get him on tape saying the N-word in order to know that or the things that he said about Colin. But what I do want to talk about is in the wake of that, the company announced a new episode of its Two Bigs podcast, which they described as the BET of Barstool Sports, which could probably just stop there and burn that and it would be just as flammable. And they put it out under the title Barstool, N-I-G-G-E-R. 
Yes, spelled out in capital letters. And that was an acronym standing for now it's going, now it's going to get extremely real. So for anybody opening their podcast or sharing it on Twitter, it was just constantly putting the full harder N word in front of everybody. And it didn't even, I mean, it didn't really even match up with the discussion they were having, which in which they also talk about being uncomfortable with it and coming for it. And essentially, you know, their response from their boss was, well, I sign your checks. Like there, there's so much here that's really bad from the way that you treat black labor. But then also like they want to come later, the talent, the black talent that was involved with this. And it was a conversation between two black people and two non-black people of color about the use of the word and other kind of racism in the company they should not be put in a position in order to do this. And then also like, I just, I, is the check that good? Like, please, like what, like why? Like there's so many questions here and I doubt that we'll get answers or answers that are satisfying later. They were like, Oh, we didn't know that was the name. And that's probably a bigger problem. Um, either way, the entire thing is just like, so there's hardly words for how disgusting it is. And it's sickening that everywhere I go, I see, you know, Saturday for the boys or the little, you know, I teach classes. Half the guys in my class always have a bar stool sticker on their computer. And even if they're like, oh, it's toxic, we'll listen to this other, but we like this one show within it. But I can never see that without thinking of this type of thing. And that's true for so many. And I think this is just another thing that is so disgusting about how they run their company and people who are over there. But like, once you think they can't go lower, they do. How do you, the BET of Barstool Sports and you title it Barstool Hard R. I, 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 <laughs> what? Ew, burn it. Burn. Alrighty, Jess. Okay, so... This is a content warning for violent racist language that's going to appear very early on in my burn. So here we go. In late May, a high school football coach in Darby, Montana, about an hour south of Missoula, made racist comments on a Facebook post about Black Lives Matter protesters in Salt Lake City. Jeff Snavely, which is quite a name for this, Jeff Snavely wrote, quote, they should all be strung up and hang in the public like the old days. A lot less of that shit would go on. In response to people being upset at this, Snavely told the school board, quote, I am truly sorry for my words. I can see how they can be construed into racism. I am truly not racist. I've played football in this valley with other races. I'm sorry for the words I typed. I understand how they could be seen as racist. He also said, quote, it could have been worded differently and none of this would have been an issue. That is my problem to bear. I don't even know what to do with that, honestly. If you've ever put forward the idea that white people being around black and brown people will cure white people of their racism, you got to let that idea go. Integrated football teams have not and will not make white people not racist, clearly. Snavely is a prime example. The school board, of course, of course, of course, decided not to fire him, only to discipline him, despite the fact that most citizens who participated in the school board meeting asked for him to be fired. At their subsequent meeting, the school board determined that his punishment will be a one-year suspension without pay. If the season's canceled because of COVID, his suspension will carry over to the next year. He also has to attend and complete board-approved one-on-one training or counseling on social racial injustice at his own expense. The reason I know about this is because there was a story going around earlier this week on the Twitter 
about a father and son team who live in East Glacier Park in northern Montana. They've launched a campaign for everyone to boycott der- Derby football games. I like how 406mtsports.com describes the father and son. So, quote, Brandon Berthelson, an elementary school teacher and former high school wrestler who lives in East Glacier Park on the Blackfeet Reservation, and his son Noah, the valedictorian of the 2020 graduating class at Browning High School. There's also this great image of Noah at the top of the piece holding a sign reading BLM and MMIW defund the police. BLM for Black Lives Matter, MMIW for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. In their letter explaining why boycotting Derby football is necessary, Brandon and Noah wrote, quote, and please indulge me here. It's a little bit of a long one. Montana has a dark history with vigilante justice, and the flippant comment made by the Derby football coach on social media serve only to stoke further fear in an already anxious and vocal radical minority that craves mob justice and any excuse to turn ownership of a gun into a monopoly on violence. His words are more than just his opinion. Whether or not he wanted to, he injected race into the discussion of high school sports in Montana, and by failing to take the correct action and terminate his employment, Darby High School is insisting that this remain a topic of conversation well into the next school year. They are a dog whistle to racism and brutality against peaceful individuals working to correct the systemic racial discrimination running rampant today. Instead of romanticizing the past, those involved in education in Montana should be dedicated to teaching it. In Montana's K-12 students, 11.4% are Native. 80.5% are white and 0.9% are black, compared to the national averages of 51% white and 15.7% black. Noah told the Missoulian, quote, if Darby Schools does not fire the coach, their message will be clear that they want that number of black students to be even smaller than that. I don't think that they should stand by someone who calls for violent and vigilante quote unquote justice against peaceful protesters. So Brandon and Noah would like to see a boycott of games leading to cancellations. Noah says, quote, the legitimacy of their football program will come into question every week until the school takes the appropriate action and fires Jeff Snavely permanently. It's utterly disgusting that this man gets to keep his job. I hope other people in Montana are listening to the Burlesons and show their disdain for the school board keeping Snavely on the payroll and in a position to coach children, especially any child of color. I hope there is a boycott as long as he is a coach there. All of this just makes me so angry. So, burn. Burn. All right, Shireen, take us home. Very heavy trigger warning for this one for mental health and for death by suicide. The last week, a 22-year-old South Korean triathlete named Choi Sokyun died by suicide after filing complaints of abuse and assault against a former coach, team doctor, and high-ranking official. And she was extremely frustrated at, and, and angry with how slow the process was going in order to, quote-unquote, investigate the allegations that she had made. And the proof that she had was including audio tapes by and they corroborated everything that she and her parents had said and it was she was subject to beatings uh, verbal harassment by coach and it's been really bad in one particular instance she was made to eat to buy 160 dollars of bread and eat it all because she had put on some weight and this type of torture just obviously took a toll and she died. And I would like to burn specifically that federation for being reckless and hateful and incredibly misogynistic 
And this is not the first we've talked about issues in South Korea with athletes. Oh, you might have recalled we spoke of, I can't remember who it was, that burned um, in a case of abuse against Chim Suk-hee, who was a double uh, Olympic gold medalist and short track speed skater, who was one of the first people to go uh, public with allegations against her coaches of mental, physical, and sexualized violence. And this was in 2018. And so, you know, I'm We'll put a link in the show notes, but the wording was that it sent shockwaves through South Korea's sports world. Now, the problem is, is that it wasn't. It shouldn't be. We know this is, you know, this type of behavior happens all over the world. This type of violence exists in these spaces and that are, you know, it's very much about power and control. And what I specifically want to burn is twofold, is one, the process because there is no process that's meant to serve justice in these type of pseudo-legal systems. And two, I want to actually burn the impunity with which these actions are carried out. I hate it. And it makes me really angry in the injustice and the pain that is suffered by her, her family. I'm furious. May she rest in power and may those culpable be held accountable. Burn. 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 After all that burning, it's now time to recognize some badass women of the week. Honorable mentions. Bestine Kazadi, who's been elected as the new AS Vita club president. She's the first female head since the creation of the Congolese club back in 1935. Congratulations to Maya Hayes. She's the newest assistant coach for uh, the Minnesota Gophers women's soccer team. Congrats to you, Maya. Melody Davidson, who's a legendary figure in women's hockey, is retiring. As one hockey kin to piece uh, noted, her resume is, quote, unparalleled in the women's game, four gold medals at the Olympic uh, Winter Games, five more at the World Championships, 10 at the Four Nations Cup. Her career has included 36 events with Team Canada as a head coach, assistant coach, general manager, and head scout, and every one of them ended with a medal. Happy trails, Melody. Congrats for the NWSL for having the highest rating in NWSL history with the first match of the Challenge Cup. 572,000 viewers. Keeping on the NWSL, I want to give a special shout out to um, Ziara King, who made her debut with the Utah Royals and scored in the 89th minute. If you haven't seen the Instagram of her brother celebrating her goal, like go find it. It will give you such joy. And I also want to shout um, her out for she she noted that she decided to become a Riveters fan and noted that the image they were using the silhouette with the ponytail she said I really want this shirt but can I get some texture in that pony for the black girls I'm thinking something like Soraya Tanger maybe one for short hair girls too she followed that up with a tweet that said I've always felt some type of way about straight ponytails being the symbol for women especially in sports I've got x amount of soccer trophies in my basement with ponytails and every time I saw that as a kid I thought this was not made for me continue speaking up Lindsay interviews boys Soraya and um Ziara for our special episode at the beginning of the month black women athletes speaking up check them out cheer them on congrats on your debut and your goal and now can i get a drum roll please (laughs) 
It's no secret yet again, our badass woman of the week is Maya Moore. And how could it not be? We have followed Maya Moore's commitment to racial justice and the Jonathan Irons case um, over the last year. And this week, the long awaited moment had come. The, the conviction was vacated. The retrial was denied and Irons took his first steps outside of the carceral building, outside of the prison. Um, Maya Moore was on hand. It's a very emotional video if you haven't seen it. Minnesota Lynx head coach Cheryl Reeve had noted before, this is the epitome of using your platform. She's not dribbling up the court, not making a move, but the way she's given herself is the same way she gives as a teammate, as a professional to her craft. It's just who Maya is. If Maya's doing it, it's going to be excellent. Doesn't matter which team she plays on, she gives that team a chance to win. And in this case, win they did. Congratulations to Maya Moore, to the entire legal team, to everybody that contributed and was working on this case. It's truly extraordinary. I'm so happy for Irons to have his well-deserved freedom. Um, May we all continue in the blueprint that Maya has laid down about being committed to making this world a better place. Congrats, Maya. You are a badass woman of the week. And now... What's good in your world, Lindsay? Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know what? Uh, what's good for me and my my dog right now is that uh, July 4th is over and I know that the fireworks will not completely stop my neighborhood, but I do hope that they will not go until 3 a.m. like they did last night anymore. Because uh, uh, we do not sleep well during all that. Yeah, so I would say that. And just, you know, I think July, we were talking about the book. I'm really, July is going to be a big month for me as far as book writing and book reporting. And uh, I'm excited about that because I, uh, you know, I think I'll be able to exhale a little bit when I get, get some some words on the pages. Yes, happy writing. I'm writing. <laughs> Let's write together, maybe. Yes. <laughs> we'll just motivate each other. Uh, Shireen, what's good with you? basil basil is good with me my plant is thriving mashallah i don't want to give it the evil eye but i am so excited i have a zucchini plant that's blooming did you know that zucchini comes from within the flowers of the zucchini plant i don't know if you did but it's fascinating um i share mint with my neighbor and he gives me lettuce so basically i've started a food co-op from my balcony anyway also football is back y'all and man city beat liverpool and i was so happy sorry liverpoolians you think you're all that um arsenal won this week and i think that'll be the only time it will happen so i was happy i'm I'm loving and wsl um it's basically my nightlife uh lastly uh two new netflix series say i do i love it I watch all of it and cry in the introduction. I'm so happy because I finished Queer Eye, which I also love. Season five, I loved. And then I was like, what am I going to watch? But See I Do is amazing. And then another one called Home Game, but more on that later. Um, lastly, my beloved third child, Salahuddin, is turning 16 next week. I'm going to be off recording because celebrating his birthday. I love him dearly. And he's the quietest set of my children and the most introverted He's also 6'5", and I want to do something to embarrass him fully for his 16th. I offered to have a sweet 16 ball, and he said no and was, like, furious at the suggestion. But I will come up with something 
and outdo myself again. Uh, he only turned 16 once and I want it to be memorable and fun. So we'll see what happens. That's awesome. Happy birthday. I'll go um, next. This week, I got to the Century Club for Peloton, which is uh, 100 rides. It's something they make a really big deal out of. You'll see people celebrating with balloons. I've seen people get cakes made. It's wild. Um, But they send you a shirt. And for me... It was extra sweet because I, I've I've reached this point in just under two months and I was kind of taking it easy and I didn't know what I wanted to do my 100th ride with or whatnot. And then they announced the Whitney Houston ride. So I had, uh, I was still like 20 rides away from that. So I paced myself and I did 20 rides over two days so that I could do my 100th <laughs> ride with Allie Love to Whitney Houston music that and is it a was wild amazing sentence, and That's a it wild was great sentence. and I was really proud of myself and then it was yeah so I'm just really happy you know I've had great joy in in that community and that bike particularly Black Girl Magic's of Peloton which is 7,000 Black women deep at this point and so that was really exciting for me this week also right now one of my very best friends has been in labor for 24 hours so I've been <laughs> up texting and I'm hoping that next week my what's good will be her healthy arrival of her new baby boy but childbirth and COVID is a bitch y'all listen (laughs) but I'm that's you know I'm bubbling over about that Jessica what's good with you yeah so as soon as we're done recording I'm going to finish packing up my family we are headed up to Dallas it's like the one Airbnb in Texas I could find that would allow me to bring my dog and has a pool. So we're going to go hang out in the pool for the next three days. And we're all very excited about that. It'll be nice to just be somewhere else for a second. But I did end up cooking all day yesterday to take all of the food with us uh, (laughs) when we go so we don't have to leave once we get there. Uh, I recently read a romance novel that took place in Rome, and it made me really want to go visit Italy And I took four years of Italian when I was in uh, college, and I've always been horrible at languages. Yeah, yeah. I can read pretty well, but speaking has always been really hard. So I signed up for Rosetta Stone, and I've been learning Italian. That's like my my new thing. It makes me very happy. And so maybe one day I'll actually be able to speak, and I'll go to Italy and make, make our way through. And I just want to say that... I'm, Amira talked about it last week. I know there's issues with it, but the Hamilton movie made me incredibly happy over this weekend. I really Indeed. enjoyed watching it. I also just want to do a little plug for the, it's nothing like the Hamilton movie, but the Eurovision movie on Netflix is a ridiculous, <laughs> silly, silly thing. And I enjoyed every second of it. That's it for this week of Burn It All Down. Burden All Down is produced by Kinsey Clark and also shout out to our social media guru, Shelby Weldon. Although we are done for this episode, of course, you can check out our website, burnitalldown.com, for show notes, for all the other episodes, for transcripts. Also, check out our link on the website to our Teespring store or go there directly, teespring.com backslash burnitalldown. There you find really any merch you want. We'll have exciting updates hopefully soon on Burn It All Down face mask. But until then, on Teespring, you can still use that code STAYHOME20 for 20% off of your merch purchase. 
A reminder, Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. We always appreciate your reviews and feedback, so subscribe, rate, share. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Of course, you can email at us. I already gave you the website. I hope you check it out. And until then, flamethrowers, as Brenda says, burn on, not out, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>